0: Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, I'm your host, Shadi Abhan, I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about clinical advances, and what I thought, as we are now in 2022, that we take a look back at the year that we left, 2021 and try to discuss probably the most notable advances in hematology that really made an impact in 2021. And we need to look at these advances with a little bit of a skeptical lens because that's how we do it on Healthcare Unfiltered. And who is more skeptical than Papa Him? Dr. Aaron Goodman, Papa him, who is always skeptical well-known for his long hair and for his educational platform on Twitter. So I thought, you know what, let's have Aaron on the show and let's try to look at 2021, and try to look back at some of the advances that we have experienced and noted in clinical hematology. I hope you enjoy this episode because really it summarizes a little bit of what is clinically relevant, and I certainly would want to get your feedback on the abstract that Aaron selected because it is ultimately his selection, and I'm here just to kind of poke holes in some of his selections like I always do. So I hope you enjoy it. I want to also thank you for supporting this podcast and um, being part of the viewership on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and the listenership on all podcast outlets. Please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have some time, write a brief review, refer friends, and uh, just let me know how I'm doing. You can always direct message me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or send me an email to Shady nabhan oo at outlook.com. Also check out my website, www.chadinabhan.com And as a reward and for you being an amazing and wonderful listeners and viewers, let me know if you want to get one of these famous podcast t-shirts, gray or black, free of charge, just as a thank you for supporting the show and being part of the um, listeners um, that always provide feedback and tune in every Tuesday morning. Thank you. And without further ado, a year in review in hematology with Aaron Goodman, Papa Heem. Well, here he is, Papa Heem. Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. You are a frequent guest, and we are always appreciative of you being on. So uh, Aaron, just really briefly for folks who don't know you, which I don't really think anybody on Twitter doesn't know you, but as you know, my podcast reaches people who
1: are not on Twitter, and Twitter is not the real world, Papa. This is Yeah, it's just true, and your your podcast is expanding so many new listeners. So, um... fast, fast. so who are you? Yes. Introduce yourself. i a... I'm a a physician, a a bone marrow transplant hematologist at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, um, And I treat all sorts of blood cancers uh, and do transplant. And I'm uh, interested in education also, do a lot of education.
0: I have to admit that I love your uh, educational tweets. I am um, ashamed to say that I don't answer all of them because, Sometimes I don't know the answers (laughs) and you do have some difficult questions. These Beatles questions were not
1: easy. I like, yeah, I thought those were, those were, those were were good. Some people do them.
0: Yeah. Okay. So what me and you talked about is we're going to have like this fun episode about, you know, a year in review, a year in hematology review. And I'm trying to think when we would air this, we are tipping this on January 9th but I'm trying to see when we air it, probably sometime in February or something. But anyway, so a year in review, the idea is let's try to focus on maybe, I don't know, top five to 10 data points or abstracts or papers that really caught your attention that had some practical implications in the world of hematology. You are into education, so I wanted to picture yourself that you are tasked by giving grand round presentations on top advances in hematology in 2021 and the audience are fellows of hematology nationwide so you really want to teach them what what you heard makes sense yeah
1: i mean i, I got to think about these hold on
0: um let's start with one go ahead what? let's do let's do let's do i'll throw you one the CAR-T data that we have at ash last ash what do you think of that
1: yeah so there were uh there were three studies uh, for CAR T cells. Uh, at, at, well, there were numerous CAR T studies, but there were three very important ones. They were the first randomized studies with uh, uh, CAR T cells. They were all for large cell lymphoma, and they were all directed towards uh, uh, CD19 was the, the target. It was with the three products, LISO cell, LisoCell, cell, and, and cell. And they all looked at generally the same patient population, which was um, uh, uh, patients who uh, at first relapse. So they uh, got their chemoimmunotherapy, uh, chop, and then they either were refractory to that chemoimmunotherapy or relapsed within one year. And it was the same population uh, in, in all three studies, roughly. Uh, um, and this is different from what the label is for these products, which is relapse after two therapies or uh, autologous stem cell transplant. So first, what's I think just a, 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 an amazing advancement is that we could do a randomized study with CAR T-cells, uh, which was felt to be not super practical or very hard to do. So we were able to do it, um, which is great. Um, but we clearly saw some of the issues with running these studies. And so two of the studies, uh, one with LisoCell and one with cell. The cell one is uh, Zuma7 published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed uh, a benefit in terms of event-free survival uh, uh, with the CAR-T as opposed to going to salvage uh, chemotherapy and autologous transplant while the TISA cell uh, paper, which is also published in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, at the same, uh, I think, uh, edition, and was a negative study which showed no benefit going straight to CAR T. So it kind of leaves me and I think the other uh, physicians, especially someone like me who does both CAR T and transplants um, at odds of, of what to do uh, uh, with these patients. Um, I, I think what what's... Uh, You know the endpoints were slightly. The endpoints were similar, but the what they called events were slightly different. And and, uh, you know in some of the studies they allowed bridging therapy, while in other studies they did not allow bridging therapy. Uh, The patients were slightly different. So I don't think we we have a true answer. But what I can say is, what is Papa going to do with this information? Uh, Well, what I'm going to do is, if someone is is refractory to uh, a chemoimmunotherapy, truly blowing through our chop, I I I am going to try to take them to. CAR T cell. uh, um, And we'll, assuming that we get the approval for this. uh, um, And most of the patients, at least in my hands, you know, they're treated by the community physician and they're refractory. So then they get referred to me. Well, by the time I see them, it's usually a few weeks later uh, from that initial time of them being uh, refractory to their chemoimmunotherapy. And then I say, okay, I think you need a CAR T cell. Well, then they got to go through this gauntlet of stuff. And for those who, don't know. This process is similar to our autologous or allogeneic transplant uh, evaluation, where they need to have psychosocial support, they need to have a living situation within 60 miles of the cellular therapy center, uh, um, uh, good organ function, so echo PFTs, and these things don't happen overnight. So by the time you do all that and say they're fit for it, and then collect the CAR Ts and give them, it's usually about eight, sometimes to 12 weeks from when they were first refractory to the chemoimmunotherapy Okay. So at least in my hands, most patients need bridging therapy. And uh, when I say bridging therapy, that is some sort of uh, chemo, steroids, or novel agent to keep them in some sort of, you know, without letting their lymphoma blow up, so they're still a candidate for 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 the CAR T cell. So Zuma Seven didn't allow that, uh, uh, while the Liso cell uh, uh, study did. Uh, but they're going to get bridging therapy, and I suspect most patients uh, who get bridging therapy uh, uh, prior to CAR T. Uh, will not have anything better than stable disease, maybe may the occasional partial response. And those patients I will take to CAR-T because they do seem to do better than, than auto. But for those patients who achieve a CR to bridging therapy, well, they're, they're, which is rare. You're, It's gonna be very rare where you're gonna see a primary refractory uh, lymphoma, uh, then get a CR to GEMOX or whatever you do is bridging, but it's not impossible. Those patients I would maybe then still consider for, for autologous transplant. Granted, I know I'm going against the study, uh, 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 but just because, you know, you only have so many bullets to kill this disease and, um, you know, that's their time where they can still maybe benefit from auto. And I, I, I would... So, so
0: so so if you if you decide you want to do CAR T though, which product will you use? I mean, technically you've got uh, right. I mean, so so I think you you mentioned CAR T in general terms as as a as a modality, but let's assume you've got the three products approved for that indication. And and they are, I mean, they are for relapse refractory after two therapies, after yes. two treatments. You're right. I mean, the the on-label is not yet for this particular indication, but let's say it is for the three products, which one would you use, Lysocel, axicell or?
1: Yeah, T-cell, well, T-cell won't because they the study failed, okay? Right. Uh, um, and uh, that's a study that allowed bridging therapy. They actually allowed multiple rounds of bridging therapy in that study. Uh, the cell, I-, I would use axicell uh, just because the, the manuscript's there and has the longest follow-up right now. Uh, and if you look at the, the cell data, and the Lisa Saldeo, that's earlier. The, the overall survival curves are starting to split, so I'm hopeful that we will see an o- overall survival uh, advantage. So, uh, and uh, there's a bias to this also. Our center, uh, you know, you, you, oncologists use what they're they're comfortable with, and and our center uh, was part of the original Zuma. Uh, we were part of the Zuma studies, uh, and that's the product I've used the most of. I and uh, uh, Where I'm just comfortable with it, I know what to expect. And granted, there does seem to be maybe more toxicity with axi cells as, uh, as opposed to uh, LisaCell or, or the other product. But uh, that's what we're comfortable with, so I would use that. Hey,
0: Aaron, how do you think they were able to get by without bridging therapy with zoom seven?
1: Well, the, that's that's the whole point. They used be- they had to have used better patients, and they didn't. If you look, I you know I didn't look at the study right before we talked to it, so I don't remember the exact details. But there weren't a huge amount that like were consented and then like didn't go on to proceed to their their therapy, uh, uh, um, you know, like intention to treat, you know, they, they most made it so it was a better popular, it had to be a better population than what I'm seeing because my patients, well, there's two possibilities. Either I'm too fast to use bridging therapy and maybe they don't need bridging therapy and I get too scared too fast um, or, or the patient population was just better. And I suspect it's the latter. Uh, because uh, uh, I know what I've seen, and I've seen even patients with bridging therapy uh, who have explosive lymphoma still don't make it to CAR T. Uh, um, so, but the Liso study—they uh, uh, did allow bridging therapy, and that that study, I uh, presume, were then sicker patients. But again, we don't have the publication yet. So,
0: and and you know, the way I was thinking as you're talking in terms of structuring the remainder of the podcast, we'll go over like disease entities: lymphoma, leukemia, yep. BMT. Blah, blah, blah. I think the myeloma and all that. this way, I think we can think through this. So in, in uh, lymphoma as well, um, this is Carti. T. Uh, there was also the Polarix trial that got a lot of attention uh, at ASH and, and so on, and then was subsequently published in the New England Journal of Medicine also. What's your take on Polarix?
1: Yeah, so, uh, and again, just because I hope we have fellows and, and trainees and people interested, let's just go over the, you know, cause a lot changed for DLBCL. So the general schema of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, you have a standard fit diffuse large B-cell lymphoma patient, non-double hit, uh, they get our, our CHOP uh, is the standard of care, which it has been um, since I've been an oncologist. And before that CHOP was the standard for forever uh, until finally Rituximab showed a benefit uh, for those patients who achieve a remission, they stay in remission and you're done with therapy. Uh, For those patients who relapse, uh, uh, if they're fit, the standard of care was uh, salvage chemoimmunotherapy like RICE, RGDP, and then if chemosensitive PR or CR, they would go on to autologous transplant and we would cure 20 to 40% of those patients. And as we just talked about with the CAR T cell data, that may change. and We now use CAR T products for those primary refractory or for the patients who've relapsed within one year. And then for those patients who relapse after autologous transplant, they should get a CAR-T if they have not already. Uh, um, um, or if they're not fit or candidates, there's all these now standard, you know, novel agents like polituzumab, vidotin, uh, combined with BR, uh, lone cast uh, CD19-directed uh, 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 antibody drug conjugate. Uh, and there's um, a which I 1,000% don't recommend using. Okay, so that's our schema for, for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, so the Polarix study, you know, is this practice changing for me? Well, I will get to the punchline at the end. I don't want to spoil it. Uh, uh, so P- Polarix was a very, well, it was a good randomized study uh, done at many centers. Uh, um, and uh, they randomized to RCHOP or polituzumab plus uh, uh, CHP. So they, they got rid of the vincristine. Uh, that's a fair study. It was a four verse four. They swapped. So they're adding the novel agent polituzumab vedotin, which is a monoclonal to CD79B, uh, uh, attached to vidotin, a microtubule inhibitor. Um, so that's fair. It's not like myeloma or four verse three or, you know, I, I like that, that, that they got rid of, and they got rid of the vincristine because of the overlapping toxicities of neuropathy. And so they asked the question, their primary endpoint was, was PFS. Um, and uh, they included mainly stage three to four patients, although it wasn't a pure advanced stage study. Uh, roughly ten to percent were early stage disease, which I find peculiar in this setting. And why they did that, I, I don't know. And maybe that interferes with the results, but but they did ten percent. Uh, they allowed double expressor, double hit, but there weren't many double hits. Uh, there were a reasonable amount of double expressors. Um, and um, uh, a polituzumab combination won. Uh, and when I say one, it won in the primary endpoint of PFS, but it, like the absolute benefit was like five percent or five to six percent. And that's really follow-up of about two years. We don't have an overall survival uh, benefit yet, but it's still early follow-up. So not groundbreaking, but it's the first study in a while uh, to show a benefit versus the king, RCHOP. And then toxicity was fairly identical, although you gotta use GCSF with the polituzumab. There was more febrile neutropenia uh, numerically, but not statistically, uh, neuropathy was the same. Uh, and then of course, polituzumab vedotin is like a crap ton more expensive than uh, vincristine okay? Uh, so as my friend Chris Booth would say, um, who I, I, uh, up in Canada, this is a marginal benefit, but it is a benefit, but a marginal. I don't think anyone could say that this is a game changer. This is the, the, the thing, the bee's knees for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's a marginal benefit at a magnificent cost. Now, as an oncologist, I have no control over the cost of, of, I don't control that, but I do have control over how much I prescribe it. I can control that quite a bit. Um, So I'm torn because I really actually don't want to change because uh, I I don't think it's worth it And and, uh, uh, at this point. That being said, I haven't encountered it yet, fortunately or unfortunately, how you look at it. The majority of patients I see with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma are the relapse setting because uh, that's who makes it to the transplanter and the cellular therapist, but I do see frontline patients. And um, I don't know, I mean, I'm, you know, I'll of course go over the data with them. And, but I, I, I can imagine when I go over this data with my patients that um, uh, the two options now are R-CHOP, polituzumab plus CHP, and this one was better. There was less relapse, uh, not more CR, but the PFS was longer. Of course, they're going to say, why wouldn't I want that? And then I'm not paying the price. My insurance is going to cover it. And um, I I don't know if I can give them. I don't know. What would you say to your patient, Shadi? I mean, you know, they're going to say, why wouldn't I want the best therapy? Even if it's only marginally benefit, it's no more toxic. And and I I, I think at that point, I'll probably have to offer it. Uh, That being said, I was hoping that the Morse Cancer Center formulary uh, uh we just wouldn't put this on formula for the front line say we're just not you know i think that's the way that we could do it us as a as a as a community if we all said together we're not this isn't we're not accepting this for this price for this benefit then it would be easier yeah. but we're gonna think, accept it
0: i think i think for me when i look at this aaron i i always think uh to the way i would approach this is um you know it is very clear that when the study was designed, The folks that designed the study and the investigators and the institutions have all collectively believed, rightfully or wrongfully, that an improvement in progression-free survival is sufficient. In other words, you know, I'm sure they had this conversation and they said, you know, what is the primary endpoint that will really be meaningful for us and they've agreed that it's PFS. Now it's a completely different podcast, PFS versus overall survival for DLBCL. And I agree with you. I mean, I actually, you know, I I believe OS is very important in a curable entity in general to change standard of care. But somehow when the trial was designed, PFS was the primary endpoint. So I think for all practical purposes, the study met its primary endpoint and it's a positive study. It's, there's no question about it. So, but the, you know, positive is very small positive. It's about 6% improvement in PFS. Whether this will translate into improvement in overall survival or not, I think it's yet to be determined. And I think we'll probably have to wait another one to two years to see if there's a difference. Plus you have to account for post-progression therapies, which I believe might neutralize things, especially that the benefit is so small, like 6% PFS difference. So I think it's going to be probably the only data that we will have. I actually don't think we're going to have an OS difference because I think when it's only 6% and post-progression therapy is probably going to neutralize some some, some advantage. What I believe is going to happen um, is that folks at various institutions will have almost an algorithm. Uh, I think they will say, these are the patients that I will actually treat with POLA versus not. And I think you'll be surprised. I believe that the field within a couple of years will move completely towards map That's my well, prediction.
1: I, I agree. I will say that, yeah, we agree PFS was the, the endpoint, But and this is a whole other podcast, but um, clearly the drug company, right, is Genentech, would much prefer PFS as the endpoint as it's easier to show. And Unfortunately, or fortunately for the drug company, the FDA is going to be okay with that. So, uh, um, and then the investigators are handed this uh, uh, company-sponsored study. You know, they can't—they can't say change the primary endpoint. I mean, I guess if they all did, but that's not going to happen. So, so we just have all become okay with this. And again, I think that's a greater issue that's beyond the scope of this talk. And I agree, it's going to be—you know—but uh, to, to be honest, you know, I, I kind of ask myself, what I want? Pulituzumab? Don't I actually don't? I don't really. I guess. I don't know. I'm like, I like couldn't carry either way if I got our chopper polo. Cause that's how much I don't think it helps that much. Uh, but you're right. It was a positive study and it, it's been forever to get a positive study in this. And, and again, I think it was a well-done study. I don't really have anything critical to say of the study. Uh, um, and, and for that reason, uh, I think, and what I said, when I have my patients, it's going to be tough to not give that regimen. So Papa, he well, will probably give that regimen. Yeah.
0: Let's, uh, let's stick with non-Hodgkin lymphoma. In 20, yeah. and, and the way I want to like in 2022, are you going to do anything different in 2022 for patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma that you did not do in 2021? That's how we're framing this. Anything yeah. else in non-Hodgkin lymphoma that was- that I'll do of,
1: differently?
0: Like any anything in terms of, if you look at the year in review, anything you've in 2021 that emerged that might change how you would treat patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma? Uh,
1: not dramatically. I will, well... Uh, uh, some of the, and I know you're not, uh, you know, in PTCL, uh, uh, um, which is one of my interests, and a little education, I like teaching. Uh, we don't see a lot of PTCLs. So, uh, you know, 10% of, of non Hodgkin's lymphomas in the United States, and there's many different flavors, uh, but the main flavors are uh, PTCL NOS, which is basically pathologists don't know, doesn't know which one to call it, and they just call it that. Um, Anaplastic large cell lymphoma, either ALK positive or negative. Uh, uh, angiaminoblastic T-cell lymphoma. Those are the main ones. Um, And um, what happened two years ago was that they uh, did CHOP versus BV plus Brentuximab plus CHP. uh, And that was for CD30 positive peripheral T-cell lymphomas. And they had to express 10% or more CD30, just like the Polituzumab study. They got rid of the because of the overlapping toxicities of Brentuximab and of vincristine. So again, another, fair study, they swapped out a drug granted way more expensive. And uh, the study uh, was positive for both PFS and overall survival. Like that's like a, a landmark thing for peripheral T cell lymphoma and overall survival advantage. And so I largely uh, adopted uh, that regimen. Now the the, the the details though are 70% of the patients enrolled in that study were ALKAR, or anaplastic large cell lymphoma, which are uniformly CD30 positive. So Really, it's a study of that in very few of the other groups. And the longer-term follow-up showed that in subgroups like angiaminoblastic and PTCL-NOS, that that regimen, I know it's subgroup, but uh, really didn't seem to do much, and if maybe even hurt those patients. Uh, and given that this is, and it, it makes sense, those don't usually express a huge amount of CD30. And, and um, you know, th- those patients, I'm probably still going to use CHOP, especially the angiaminoblastics or CHOP plus a, a topocide. Uh, so, so that that is a slight change in, in how I do with PTCL, uh, and I'm trying to think of other. The other the other thing is a little bit of a, a unicorn disease. There's a, uh, you know Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, so lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma, which is an indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, but what's unique about the entities? It's right before those lymphocytes; they're about to become plasma cells, but they just haven't yet committed, so they're lymphoplasmacytic cells. And if you think back to uh, lymph node biology. Uh, uh, when, when the uh, lymphocytes undergo class switching that first they're all IgMs to begin with. And then they switch to IgG, A, or all the other ones. So the lymphoplasmacytic cells, they're all stuck in the IgM phase. And with Waldenstrom's, you get secretion of IgM. Um, so that's the, and it's a perineoplastic syndrome with LPL. The IgMs a pentamer, So you see all these unique things with the IgM, hyperviscosity, uh, and then IgM itself can. So it's, it's a cool little unique syndrome that can have quite a bit of morbidity even though it's an indolent lymphoma. Um, I had been, you know, I'm still treating those patients fit with bendamustine rituximab, uh, but there's now been, uh, uh at relapse or in patients who are not fit for chemoimmunotherapy, I have been using a brutinib, uh, plus rituximab, uh, and the long-term data of that came out. And it's quite remarkable, uh, uh, that, um, more, more than half had still not progressed at greater than five years with, uh, rituximab and a and in CLL, which is a disease I do not treat, uh, but there was a randomized study with uh, a, 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 a calibrutinib uh, versus abrutinib. And it showed they worked the same and uh, that there was less toxicity with the acalabrutinib, uh, less atrial fibrillation, less bleeding. And so I've now adopted calibrutinib as my BTK of choice for indolent lymphomas. Uh, and it's been studied in Walden's problems, And I feel fairly confident that it's just as effective uh, and it, it does have less atrial fibrillation, which could be quite. So I've changed my practice that way. So that was just a little thing, uh, but I, I wanted to share that 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 nugget.
0: <laughs> you want to talk anything about Hodgkin? Have you seen anything about Hodgkin? Uh, and uh, oh, by the way, before we move to Hodgkin, how could we not talk about intrathecal prophylaxis for for oh, yeah. DLBCL? I mean, my goodness. Uh, I don't know, I mean, at the last ASH meeting, I felt this was like the nail in the coffin of uh, CNS prophylaxis. Uh, and then Matt Wilson just published that in Blood.
1: Yeah, so, well, Matt Wilson, who I love, a great guy, great colleague uh, from the other side of the pond, uh, we had a nice little debate on this podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna brag, I was right. Uh, uh, <laughs> basically, he was for intrathecal and I was against intrathecal. And I always find, you know, and at the time, we didn't, you know, we do with the data wasn't as much as we have now, but I always say when the data is, when the data on, a, on an intervention is widely discrepant, um, then what I can usually say with fairly much high confidence, either it does crap or if it does anything, it's super, 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 super tiny benefit. Okay. So that's what I can always tell my patients. I go, this most likely does nothing. And if it does anything, it does very, very little to help you. But I can always say when you add an intervention like intrathecal chemotherapy or high dose methotrexate, both are, are, which are very unpleasant experiences. I mean, I don't want to get lumbar punctures. I don't want to get hospitalized for high dose methotrexate and get mucositis. I can say with hundred percent certainty that those are toxic and a pain in the butt for patients. Okay, so I was uniformly against intrathecal or high dose methotrexate to prevent CNS prophylaxis in all comers. And I will say that when I was a fellow and a first year attending, I gave it to everyone. That's what I did because that's how I was trained. That is something I independently came to the conclusion that I was hurting my patients. So for me, it was an easy decision. But you know, most of the lymphoma uh, diehards had hung on to that because relapsing in the brain really kind of sucks. I mean, it's a it's a it's a dismal event, and most patients succumb from that, and it's catastrophic. So, and when we have patients with high risk of CNS relapse, which we have many different scoring systems, but the most famous is the CNS IPi. So poor, a high IPI baseline, a lot of extranodal disease, disease of the kidneys and adrenals, those are all risk factors. And if you get all the points, you're 10% risk. So that was deemed high risk of CNS relapse. And most physicians would say, well, in that group, they got a pretty good chance of this coming back, let's still do it, even though I acknowledge the limitations of the data. So now it ash, and uh, I don't wanna quote all the little details, but the bottom line is two huge studies uh, the best data we're going to get, because they'll never do a randomized study, although they can, but they won't. Uh, uh, um, uh, um, and now I don't even think they have to. I wouldn't even enroll in the study. So uh, um, one looked at intercalated uh, 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 high-dose methotrexate versus uh, 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 end-of-treatment uh, high-dose And when I say intercalated, that means giving it on day 14, uh, as opposed to end-of-treatment as they complete their primary chop and they get it at the end. And it showed no difference. And the belief was that... Um, intercalated is important because you want to hit it hard at first, and that's where you're going to get your relapses. And it showed no difference, and it showed more toxicity with intercalated, more delays, mucositis, and all these things. And one can say that, one interpretation of that data could say that, well, okay, you just need to give it, uh, but you can give it at the end. But the more uh, correct interpretation of that data and more likely scenario is that It doesn't work at all, so that's why they worked. There was no difference in working. You give it sooner, you just cause more toxicity. And then the second study um, basically was another huge retrospective study. And they had a lot of high-risk patients in both the intervention arm where they got a a, a CNS prophylaxis and where they did not. The highest numbers we will get, and there was zero difference between the two. So I I think that puts the nail in the coffin. It secures it for me. And even I've now talked to doctors like Matt Wilson and that group and I think they're changing their policies. I think where there's still some debate and we'll never have the answer and I have yet encountered this scenario yet although I have posted this question on Twitter, a testicular lymphoma. And we all know that they have a high risk and there was the JCO phase two paper where they did RCHOP four intrathecal uh, methotrexates and they radiated the contralateral testy and that seemed to result in good outcomes granted phase two. Um, and, and so based off that, I had been following that protocol, but you know, and now I, I don't know if it's helping. And I also don't even know if radiating the contralateral, t- I mean, I wouldn't want my contralateral testicle radiated. I mean, I'm not trying to be fine. I mean, like these are big deal interventions. So, uh, uh, I only see one of those kinds of patients every three years. So, uh, I don't know how I'll address it. Uh, um, but, but, um, uh, again, my standard of care is for sure changed or secured with no CNS prophylaxis, uh. Testicular lymphoma is still an area of debate, and uh, I don't know how I'll approach that yet.
0: So, in the world of BMT, since you do a lot of BMT, in fact, you're on the inpatient service right now, I believe. Right
1: now, I got pulled. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you got pulled. That's what happens. I mean, see, if you had COVID, you wouldn't be pulled. Uh, in the in the in the world of BMT, anything new in the world of BMT over in 2021?
1: In in BMT, okay. Oh, my girls are interrupting. Hi, girls. I'm on a thingy. I love you. Okay.
0: I love this healthcare unfiltered. We do. Oh, my know wife's that.
1: walking up here. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay, uh oh. oh. Perfect.
0: We can we can have we can have her on the podcast as well. I probably she probably have.
1: Uh, oh oh my my infant's naked. So I, that's she's granted she's under you know but. Oh, uh, yeah, it's gonna show. Probably not okay. a good idea. Yes, you're sneaking by. You're sneaking by. Yes, yeah. uh, in the world of bone marrow transplant. In the world of bone marrow transplant. Oh God, you really uh. um Hey,
0: it's your world,
1: Papa. I know. It is my world. Well, I do everything. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a good amount of my world. Um, there is now a lot of data um, um, with um, for GVHD prophylaxis uh, uh, with a, a, a Batacept, which this is pretty esoteric, I guess, if you don't do BMT, but a baticept, I like a bad it, it it's a cool, uh, so we, I think most of the oncologists are familiar with ipilimumab, right? So ipilimumab, which is approved in melanoma, right? And I don't know if it's approved in other diseases, I don't do solid, but uh, uh, ipilimumab um, basically blocks CTLA-4. So it inhibits the checkpoint and allows the T cells to go kill the cancer, okay? Now, if we had a patient, we were trying to prevent graft versus host disease, which is preventing T cells from uh, becoming allo-reactive, donor T cells uh, becoming allo-reactive versus the the, the recipients. So uh, skin, gut, liver for acute GVHD, um, why would we want to give something like ipilimumab? We wouldn't. That would do the, the opposite. That would heighten GVHD. baticept is the opposite of ipilimumab. It basically activates uh, CTLA-4. Uh, um, so it downregulates that pathway. And um, combined with uh, standard prophylaxis, uh, uh, it does decrease the, 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 the rate of GVHD. So we are largely probably going to start using more of that. And uh, we're running actually... Uh, a randomized study that is looking great. I can't comment on it. And other centers are too, where we are getting rid of uh, uh, standard calcineurin uh, graft versus host disease prophylaxis. So tacrocyclosporin, which are very effective, but have quite a bit of toxicity and are kind of a pain in the butt. You got to check levels, they interact, they hurt the kidneys. They're really not the best. They, they prevent GVHD, but they're not the best medicines. So groups that have been looking at replacing that with post-transplant cyclophosphamide, but it looks like post-transplant cyclophosphamide on its own without the tacro-methyloxate isn't enough. But we have a study, a, a randomized study where we're giving abatacept and the post-transplant psi, uh, and then no calcineurin-methyloxate. And um, my hope is that, that, that these studies are positive and then we'll completely change our way we do GVHD study without calcineurin inhibitors anymore. Uh, so that, we're not there yet, but I think we are in the era where we're gonna start adding a lot of abatacept uh, to our graft-versus-host disease. Prophylaxis. So that's really the. Um, there was another, I, you know, this was a study, and I've been, um, I've gotten some heat from my transplant colleagues for this because I've said this many times. The hardest decision I get as a transplanter. So let's do some more learning. Let's take acute myeloid leukemia. Okay. And so AML, if you have good risk AML, now there's nothing is good risk, but favorable risk, excuse me. Um, the standard of care is chemo seven plus three plus or minus gemtuzumab, And if you achieve a CR, You do not go to allogeneic transplants. You get consolidation therapy with high C in studies, roughly 60% are cured. I always tell my patients, we subtract 10% from the study. So roughly 50% are cured. Okay. That's an easy decision for me. When you have good risk AML uh, or favorable risk, I do seven plus three plus uh, a consolidation therapy and I reserve allogeneic transplant should they relapse. If you have poor risk disease, unfavorable risk, so complex cytogenetics and antecedent myelodysplastic syndrome, um, therapy-related, TP53. The treatment's actually fairly straightforward, too. It's either chemotherapy if they're fit, and usually those patients are Vixios candidates, so liposomal, which was shown to be better compared to 7 plus 3 uh, uh, in that population, although there's some issues with that randomized study that I won't get into, uh, or if they're not fit or some AML doctors will use venetoclax plus azacitidine for those really complex karyotypes TP53 that are unlike to, unlikely to respond to chemotherapy. Those patients, the decision's easy. They should all go to allogeneic transplant. Although their outcomes are still not so great with allogeneic transplant, roughly 20 to 30% long-term survival, it's not zero. I, I, I'm fairly confident if you have complex karyotype AML or unfavorable risk, the long-term survival is, is zero. You're not curing any of those patients. It's the intermediate risk AML, which has always been the hardest decision for me as a transplanter, a beyond belief, the hardest. And when I say intermediate risk AML uh, for this discussion, we'll, we'll just keep it, uh, you know, not to get into the diehards of AML, normal karyotype AML uh, without FLT3. You know, uh, we'll, let's exclude the FLT3 for this discussion. That's a whole nother uh, beef. With those patients, we don't know what to do. And if you look at the NCCN, it says, give chemo, and then it says, "Hido or her transplant. transplant." Leaves it up to the user, okay? And uh, yeah. and um, the well, but, but is, it,
0: is it but is it possible because you may not have a donor? I mean, is it like possible? Yeah,
1: because- yeah. So, so yeah. So clearly, but now I will say for those who haven't done transplant, we have a donor now for everyone. Basically, just yeah. about everyone has a haplo donor, which you can use. Uh, you know, a sibling is got a good chance of being a haplo, and all kids are are, are going to be haplo, and parents will be haplo. So. In the umbilical courts so we, we it's very rare now where I don't have a donor for anyone, and now you can even use mismatched with post transplant psi there's data that you can do that, and it can be safely done. So that that arguments not as, as big of a deal anymore, so we usually have donors uh, for everyone, and so the debate becomes whether you consolidate them or you give them a, a consolidation with the allergenic transplant and we have no ran well we didn't have any randomized data uh, for that and we. Um, we had meta analysis of, of of studies that basically allocated a, it was a genetic randomization. So if they had a donor, like a sibling, they went to transplant, if they didn't, they then went to consolidation. Those studies are okay, but there's some biases that are introduced uh, uh, because of that. Well, maybe if you have a donor, and, you know, you can find that maybe you're inherently just better risk because of that, you have more support. There's all these things that go into that you don't know. the. So it's not true randomized study. And the meta-analysis of that data showed maybe a 10%, 15% benefit of doing allogeneic transplant, but it wasn't concrete. and. Allogeneic transplants, it's not like CNS prophylaxis, right? I mean, CNS prophylaxis, as I said, is uncomfortable and unpleasant, but it's very unlikely you're going to kill a patient by giving them CNS prophylaxis. Right. When you give allergenic transplants, even in the best case scenario with a fit patient, treatment-related mortality is 10 to 20%, meaning you are going to, I'm gonna say it like this because this is true, kill the patient. You may kill a patient with your treatment modality who's otherwise already cured. Like if you're a transplanter and that decision doesn't like make you feel really uneasy about everything. Like, and again, not, I'm not calling on anyone. I'm always very impressed how cavalier some of my colleagues are recommending transplant when what I just said in the best case scenario, you will kill 10 to 20% of patients with that procedure. And some of them may already be cured. Can you fathom giving someone a therapy that could kill them when they're already cured? Like that to me is a huge deal. And even if you don't, if the patient doesn't die from it, um, there's huge morbidity associated with the procedure, lifelong complications, GVHD, secondary cancers. It's just a huge deal. As many have pointed out, if allogeneic transplant was a drug that had to go through the FDA, no way on earth would the FDA approve allogeneic transplant. Um, But um, so I've always been torn with that. Um, um, And um, i have had many patients where i do consolidate because the the question that i have is and what we really need to know is if you're going to take everyone with intermediate risk aml and you consolidate them with high deck i i will acknowledge that there will be more relapse okay but if you then take that subgroup that relapses and then do them give them the allo so only when they need it as opposed to giving everyone an allo Will there be a survival advantage? And this, you really need a survival advantage in this. Do you understand what yeah, I'm saying?
0: But yeah, but you know, I mean, I mean, there's obviously an inherent assumption in your question that everybody that relapses after HIDAC, you'll be able to salvage them and take them to Oh, oh, oh I agree. And, and that's you, know, you know, you know, I mean relapse AML is just an awful disease, no, it's just you know.
1: I, I agree, and that's always the counter-argument. You won't be able to salvage them, right? But my I think personally, a stronger argument is we don't know this for true. And we know for sure allergenic transplant's a bad thing to have to give to someone. Yeah. So I actually never had a hard time giving consolidation. Clearly it's an, you know, if it's a young patient, super fit, good sibling and everything, then like, you know, there's case by case and, you know, it's getting a little bit easier. We can follow MRD, but, but in general, you know, the whole thing's a hard decision. So they did, they did this study. Finally, they did a randomized study. It took them forever to accrue because of biases by colleagues. This was done in Europe and it. didn't, they didn't enroll to the power that they wanted to. They had to close it early. But so hats off, they did what they needed. They, they tried to do the study and uh, while underpowered and there were many limitations and who they called intermediate risk wasn't the best, they show no difference to the approach of aloe at relapse uh, uh, versus uh, upfront. And so that adds, although not it's not the, um, the like nail binger, it's not like the answer all, and we're now never gonna get that, it adds more fuel to the fire, at least to me, <laughs> that I think it's okay. And I think other transplanters should feel okay not condemning everyone with intermediate risk AML uh, to an allergenic transplant. Uh, that was a lot of talking. I hope my thought process made sense. And I think that is the hardest decision I make, uh, in allergenic transplant. I do not like seeing intermediate risk AML, it's tough.
0: So uh, we're gonna move to a topic that is uh, always dear to your heart, myeloma. Oh, I love myeloma. Yeah, I mean, that's all I hear you talk about. So what has happened in the world of multiple myeloma in 2021?
1: Well, I always have to give this disclosure because I don't want to get torn apart on Twitter, which I've been torn apart before. I am not considered the key opinion leader of myeloma. I have not designed a trial for multiple myeloma. I am not a myeloma expert. It represents, though, 20% probably percent of my practice as a malignant hematologist. And I do treat patients with multiple myeloma with induction therapy, with transplants, maintenance, and on clinical trials. So I have some insight into the the field and I am a consumer of the multiple myeloma literature. Okay, so that's the uh, disclaimer. Um, So what, God, there's quite a bit in myeloma. To be honest, I don't think, um, well, I will say practice has changed. It's changed for me, okay? And uh, we've talked about this on Twitter. Uh, uh, with a few of uh, my uh, fellow myeloma colleagues uh, who I do some research with. So quads versus triplets. So the standard of care, so let's just take, um, whenever you're, a little bit of teaching, as always, whenever you see a newly diagnosed patient with multiple myeloma, uh, the first thing you need to uh, uh, ask yourself is, are they transplant eligible or not? That's your first dividing point. And, Most patients actually are transplant eligible. We can safely do a autologous transplants uh, up to the age of, I don't usually do, you know, 75 to 80 starting to push it, but there's plenty of data that you can do it in older individuals. And we know for sure that autologous stem cell transplantation prolongs first progression-free survival, amount of MRD negativity, and overall survival, okay? And we know that for sure, it's safe, it's cheap, so that's the most important thing is whether they're transplant eligible or not. If they are, they should get a transplant What, where there is some debate and not a right answer is um, uh, uh, the ifmo 9 study showed us well that if you get standard induction therapy with RVD um, and you are transplant eligible, whether you go to transplant upfront or you save it for later, doesn't matter as far as overall survival, but it does matter for first progression free survival. I hope that point makes sense. So if you value a long first progression free survival, you should get your transplant upfront, but whether... Uh, if overall survival is your thing and you don't want to go to transplant right away, then getting it later, uh, it doesn't negate your survival. Uh, And then I usually do tell my patients it's okay to wait. And one of the arguments to waiting um, is that maybe five years from now, we won't need to do transplant anymore because we'll have better therapy. Although we've been saying that for the last two decades and that hasn't been the case. Uh, So I tell my patients that. And then um, one of the arguments for going to transplant up front is let's get it over with. It's a nice long first remission and who knows what will happen in five, 10 years. Maybe you'll have something bad happening you won't be a candidate for the procedure so none of that's changed now what has changed well, me, that's I not
0: that's up. not what you would tell them yeah i hope you didn't tell them something bad will happen no, to you
1: no, no no but i i well, I, I, I say things <laughs> yeah. but this is how i do my cons- you're witnessing how papa does some consents uh, um i really go through this stuff with my patients i present the pros and cons of both sides and i of course make a recommendation i would love to have another podcast on patient-centered decision making the way yeah. not to do it as i've seen unfortunately so much is here's a bunch of options, patient, what do you think? What do you want to do? That's clearly not the way Is the way you do it is here's a bunch of options. You value their opinions and matters. You say what you would do, and then you say what you would do, what you think you would do given their shoes, and then you make the decision together. Uh, But going back to how my practice has changed. So transplant has not changed. If they're eligible, um, um, they still go to transplant. I tend to do most of my transplants up front. Most patients want to just get it over with and have a nice first permission. So now, induction therapy. So up until now we have been doing, um, RVD's basically been the standard triplet. So Revlimid, Velcade, Dexamethasone. And, um, although never been head to head compared to Cyborg D in a randomized phase three, Cyborg D has been compared to other image containing regimens with, with thalidomide and been shown inferior. So RVD is basically what we're giving everyone outside of rare exceptions when they present with renal failure and, and other issues. And, um, now, there have been two studies. There's a randomized phase two um, that combined that looked at DARA RVD versus RVD. Okay, so a CD38 monoclonal antibody uh, versus R- 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 RVD. And um, it was better in terms of response, MRD negativity, and all that stuff. And then there was a randomized phase three study presented at ASH, uh, which was isotuximab, which is the other CD38 directed monoclonal and that was combined with RVD and their endpoint was response rate after uh, four cycles of induction. And there was um, more responses. And, and I believe, don't quote me, I'm not uh, MRD negativity. I believe there was. So we now have two studies, one randomized phase three and one uh, 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 randomized phase two. And they are doing the randomized phase three with DARA tubumab as we speak. And, um, you know, again, whether you- so it, It's RVD,
0: dara versus RVD?
1: Yep, that's a randomized phase three. In process, the randomized phase two, they reported at ASH, okay? And uh, then the randomized phase three of isotuximab with RVD was reported at ASH, both showing benefit. So we have a randomized phase three and a randomized phase two showing that quads with a monoclonal for CD38s uh, is superior to RVD. In terms of response rate and MRD negativity, it's too early for survival, okay? And um, you know, what I would say is with this data is um, it's gonna be hard now not to give this to my patients. I'm just thinking of myself. It, it does add toxicity in terms of neutropenias and infections, but it's not a huge amount. And I've given the quad before. It's not like we're adding a chemo. It's a monoclonal. And now that there is sub-Q, they don't have to have that pain in the ass infusion that used to take forever. So it's minimally less more of a pain for the patient.
0: Yeah, Aaron, is there a stratification based on high risk versus low risk myeloma based on cytogenetics, where you can at least decide that the high risk I would give quad versus.
1: So they included, and I didn't prepare for this podcast disclosure, I'm not making excuses, but uh, they, they didn't, um, I, all subgroups I believe benefited in the, uh, uh, again, subgroups. And we shouldn't really make decisions based off subgroups. That's just for further trials but the trial as a whole was, was positive. I, I, to be honest, I'll have to look that up and we should make a little blurb if I'm wrong on that one, because I don't know that with facts, okay? Um, but most in the myeloma community are, at least from Twitter and commentaries, are saying this is now the standard. And, um, you know, for you know if you look at those PFS curves with Dara rvd within a few years follow-up, very few have progressed with Dara rvd in an auto. Uh, um, it, it is quite promising. And I, I just think as a patient, um, I feel like I kind of want to get treatment and have a long super remission, not deal with my myeloma and, and live with it forever. Uh, um, um, so um, I do see value in, in that first remission. Uh, uh, you know, The only argument I have is if you give it all up front and don't have anything to give it relapse, are you being detrimental to their overall survival? I will be very shocked if that's the case. Overall survival still might end up being the same, although we now have other randomized studies with daratumumab in the frontline setting, which I won't go into the details that have shown, one is the Maya study in transplant ineligible, and then the L, something with an AL, L-cyclone study uh, with daratumumab in the frontline setting that have shown overall survival advantage giving DARA upfront. So um, I think taking that data in aggregate with fairly incremental increase in toxicity, but not, not you can't ignore it, uh, I have adopted that approach. Now, where I changed from the studies, they gave everyone like, I think, Dara, Revlim, and maintenance. Um, I will not be giving Dara to him at maintenance. That's going to cost a lot of money and make the patient go to the infusion center forever. And we have data from the Cassiopeia study uh, uh, that basically showed that in patients who got Dara up front, um, who then needed, uh, did not benefit from maintenance if they got it up front. So I'm extrapolating. But, you know, I don't want to give DARA forever. So I'm following the approaches. I'm just going to give four cycles of DARA RVD. So really only four, four a few doses. Well, they get it every week for a little bit. Then no more Dara. They're going to have a much higher response rate, more MRD negativity, do a Mel Auto, and then do rev maintenance. And I will have so, this discussion but, with but, them. But, but that's know, practice changing for me. Yeah, no, it
0: is. I think one of the, one of the issues, and I, I'm not really sure what the right answer is. I'm curious, obviously, your opinion, is that the data that the data that showed the benefit of maintenance lenalidomide did not use quadruple therapy in induction. So I guess, I mean, it's a relevant question. You know, once you now have quadruple therapy in induction, which is going to have better response and so on, It makes you wonder, do you still need a couple of years of maintenance? Maybe you do, but I just don't think we know the answer, right? Is it fair? We
1: don't. And uh, while I've been critical of MRD negativity, they are running adaptive studies, uh, you know, where they're, you know, maybe if they're MRD negative, they don't need the Revlimid. I will say, though, if you look at the um, guy, I'm not, I don't have all the myeloma. They they basically, it was the Forte study where they gave everyone KRD induction, and then um, they uh, ran, you know, and then some got auto and some didn't. And the people who were MRG negative after induction who got auto versus those who didn't, they still did better with the auto. Okay. So that just shows us they're MRG negative, but if we had a better test, they're not MRG And we, we don't we don't know the answer yet to that. So how I handle Revlimid maintenance and and, and um I, I this is how I do it with all my patients. So another how I practice in my clinic is. You know, we have reasonable data that Revlimid prolongs overall survival. Even though I hate maintenance therapy, I hate the idea of it. And I don't use maintenance therapy for PFS benefits. Uh, I use it for overall survival. This is, uh, I think that need for a maintenance setting. We do have that, that data and a meta-analysis showing overall survival, but we don't know how long to give Revlimid. So what I give my patients is they start Revlimid. And if, they, if, this, if Revlimid is causing them no problems and they, just, they don't even know they're on the medicine, we continue. But I always ask them, especially when we're a year or two into it, I go, is being on this drug decreasing the quality of your life? Because if you're a year or two into Revlimid and uh, and it's greatly decreasing the quality of your life and you're just being on it to be on it, I say it is not worth it because we don't have the data at this point and, and I stop it. So I am not shy to stop Revlimid maintenance. I have a low threshold to stop it. I do try to start it in everyone because some patients really don't have any side effects or toxicity. Granted, there's financial toxicity, uh, um, uh, um, but and that's how I do it. But, but good point. Maybe now they don't need it. I, I hope the myeloma people uh, who run the studies uh, uh, look at studies like that. Word, yes, and, and there are some studies, uh, there's a notable randomized study with a bispecific that is looking at a bispecific versus a triplet. That's amazing. They're taking a one versus three. Like This is where I want to see the field of myeloma go, uh, uh, where we're not pummeling our patients with indefinite therapy and using these new therapies to minimize uh, long-term therapy and maybe save money in the long-term. Anything else in the
0: myeloma world that uh, was uh, pretty impressive in 2021 that caught your attention?
1: So that's the practice changing. Uh, I will say in the real world setting, it's been uh, with a BECMA, the uh, BCMA uh, uh, CAR T-cell. I'm sorry, it's, it's it sucks. We haven't been able to, it's like, uh, it's awful. It's like a, hung, a hunger games. We have lists of patients to try. No one can get it. The manufacturing uh, has been, uh, we just not been able to give it to patients. Uh, um, So what they were able to do, the studies logistically in the real world has not been possible. And it's not just my center, it's, it's all centers. And this just shows the complexity of this care that I love CAR T's. They are changing, you know, but they're not. They're not, we're not there yet with, you know, these are not easy therapies to give, manufacture, administer, and get to the, the patient. And we're seeing that with the, the BCMA CAR-T, ABECMA, that's been approved for myeloma. So I have not been able to even give it uh, uh, on label. Fortunately, we have clinical studies and, uh, 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 that we can enroll these patients on. There are uh, um, other CAR-Ts uh, uh, in the space that are uh, probably going to be approved uh, uh, shortly. So hopefully that will help the, the thing. And the other thing I will say is the bispecific data, they're not approved yet but these are bispecifics uh, uh, for BCMA and the other for CD3. So again, a little teaching, these are two monoclonal antibodies fused at the FC, the tail portion. It brings the T cell to the, the cancer cell, in this case, uh, BCMA on myeloma plasma cells. All the phase one and phase two studies have super impressive response rate to single agents and they seem pretty durable. In my experience enrolling on these studies, they do work very well in my anecdotal experience. And I suspect these will be approved shortly, at least one of them, and these will basically say, I mean, there's never been a role for Selenexor, in my opinion, or not much of a role for uh, um, um, belantamab mafodotin. The, these bispecifics specifics will basically eliminate the need for those uh, uh, drugs. And also, I'll be reaching for those before CAR-Ts, I think, in many patients. They're easier to give, and there's no data that one's better than the other, and they seem to have less toxicities. Uh, 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 than the CAR-Ts, although they haven't been compared. So that will be practice oh. changing. I apologize. My kids are crying in the background. This is no, family life. I
0: think yeah. it's uh, perfect. We've talked about non-Hodgkin lymphoma, including T-cell. We've talked about myeloma. We've talked about BMT. Uh, maybe let's just tackle really, 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 really quick. Anything caught your attention in Hodgkin and in acute myeloid leukemia? I think AML, you mentioned something about AML. We mentioned
1: AML. Um, we talked um, about um,
0: that. Uh, anything yeah, I about- will say,
1: can I say what's bad for AML? Yeah. I got it. Come on. So, um, and this is, uh, you know, I don't want to steal from, from Bernie Marini, who's a, uh, uh, pharmacist at, at UMich, uh, uh, who you should have on this podcast that he's from that guy's a genius. Introduce us. Yes. I very huge fan. I mean, he just listening. I'm not, I don't, I have a crush on you. Sorry, Bernie. I mean, just listening to him talk about hematology and drugs. It's like, I learned so much from hearing him, uh, uh but he's been very critical of the drug oral azacytidine. Um, and the study was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and I see it in practice being used now. Please do not use it. Let me give you my five minutes why you should not use this drug ever. And I want the drug company to contact me because this drug sucks. This study was awful. Any investigator on that study, I plead for you to go on Twitter and, and say that this study's bad and you, you I don't know, this study's bad. What's so the study? Tell us about the study. So this is the, uh, uh, um, uh, God, uh, uh the ad, ad, not Admiral study, the, uh, god it's in the new England journal of medicine uh it was basically they took patients with aml who got a uh, uh, induction quasar quasar study okay i think it's called that sorry uh they took patients i don't know the details though uh, uh this was in the new England journal of medicine and they took patients with aml um who got induction therapy so seven plus three okay and then you had to achieve a remission okay and then you had to Not be a candidate for an allergenic transplant.
0: Okay.
1: We're allowed to get consolidation therapy, but most didn't get much, like one on average, because you had to be enrolled in the study within three months of achieving a complete remission. And and the study was so seven plus three, and then you had to be, you had to achieve a remission, a CR, so hematologic recovery, less than 5% blast. And then you had to be enrolled on the study within three months. of achieving that complete remission and you were randomized to either placebo or oral azacitidine, okay? Uh, okay. And um, they, um, so one is the standard of care is hydrocerous C. And it's not one cycle, it's like three cycles of hydrocerous C, we know that, okay? Uh, um, and um, most patients in the study didn't get much consolidation, if any, okay? And so, and they were biased towards not getting much because you had to enroll super fast after achieving a complete remission. So you yeah. can see if you've only received one dose of hydrocerous C and you're an investigator and a spot's come open, you can tell the patient, well, don't get any more hydrocerous C. You should enroll on this study of oral azacitidine versus placebo. So that's one problem. And you had to be not transplant eligible. And we'll come back to that in the, in the second. Um, and so then they randomized to oral azacitidine versus placebo. So. Problem one, not getting standard of care. So the, what would have been a better study is everyone gets their consolidation error C, which we know benefits, and then randomized to, to the oral azacytidine. but they didn't do that, okay? And then problem number two is, what they would do is you would get bone marrows every so often, like every two months, okay? Uh, um, um, and um, first of all, the punchline of the study, there was a prolongation in overall survival with the oral azacytidine, which I like. I love oral, I love overall survival. It wasn't much. But uh, prolonged versus placebo, um, and um, what they uh, what they what they did is a marrow every two months. So you could have in the placebo group greater than five percent blasts in your bone marrow. That's relapse. It's it's binary. <laughs> you either have AML or you don't. Okay, but if you were in the placebo group, you would just get more placebo still. <laughs> if you were in the oral azacitidine group, you had the option of turning up the oral azocytidine dose. So if you're in the placebo group, well, you didn't know if it was oral az or not. So you would turn up the placebo dose. So you could have relapsed AML, okay? And just be turning up placebo, okay? And this happened in a reasonable amount of patients. I went back to the supplement and looked like, I'm sorry, I, I'm gonna say it and I hope I get flacked. This is not an ethical study. It is not appropriate to be giving placebo to relapsed AML. We're not dealing with an indolent thing, okay? And and, and so two uh, bad things. They didn't get good consolidation and they're getting placebo for their relapsed AML, okay? And then yay, you showed showed a benefit for oral azacitidine. But then if you look, patients who relapse after seven plus three in consolidation, a lot of those patients will then go on to get azacitidine because that's a standard of care. They don't report Really, I couldn't find it how many people go on in the control arm to have access to azacitidine. It looks like a lot of them just got like crappy care with hydrea or supportive care. So uh, poor post-protocol reporting and giving. So this study is 100% not practice changing. It pains me that I see people uh, getting oral azacitidine based off this data. And there's no way on earth it's improving the quality of life of these patients. It's mega expensive. Uh, um, so I just think it's a real bad trial. So. Um, uh, uh that is now in our guidelines and i again i've seen it adopted to practice but if anyone reads the study that study sucks and um should not be given i hope and, and please listen to uh bernie uh from you you michigan has lots to say on this study and does a much more uh better analysis than i just did in these five minutes uh,
0: we need to get him on healthcare unfiltered uh Aaron, this is great i mean we talked about a variety of uh heme related topics and issues any any burning abstract or data on your mind from 2021 that you would like to share with folks that are going to be listening to this in 2022
1: yeah i mean um by the way why are
0: you not wearing your healthcare unfiltered t-shirt
1: i'm sorry it's in the wash because i i I have four of them but i do i do
0: (laughs) okay good good i do have a
1: lot uh, let me uh, uh, practice changing uh, or things that I'm looking forward to. I am looking forward to more of the mature publications of the, of the BCMA bites and, and, uh, and approvals of, of those agents. I'm still eagerly awaiting the publication. This is, I, I, I promised I wouldn't go COVID, but uh, there was a randomized trial of uh, selling for COVID. Okay. That they, that they, the uh, CEO and the, they were all saying this was going to be the fix-all for COVID. I don't, first of all, I mean, giving someone with COVID cell XOR seems like the worst idea in the history of time, uh, <laughs> but they convinced centers uh, to, to open this study. And they were, I remember years, a year and a half ago, they were like making me, they were pleading with me to hear this, this preclinical data that this is going to be amazing. I said, just show me in patients it works. Well, they never really the data, but there was a press release that it failed miserably. Uh, uh, or I'm still waiting, Carrier Farm, for you guys to publish that randomized data. I would like to look at it, but uh, some uh, uh, fail for Salenex, or um, what else? I know that you're putting me on the spot. Uh, oh, no, I'm no, reading. no, we we can't cover everything. I mean, I realize uh, we can't to, cover there things. are things I'm looking for. I can't come up off the top of my head. We can't uh, cover
0: thing everything in an hour. I think, you know, my my idea was, let's just talk about few data that really intrigued you and, and so on. And uh, I think that uh, we covered quite a bit.
1: Well, I'm trying to think how else I changed practice. I mean, those were the... I think you're uh, probably
0: using Epoch R for everyone.
1: Oh, can we talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, you've got
1: a couple of minutes. Let's talk Epoch R. Are yeah, you using um, it for anybody? Yeah, so um, Epoch R, I have now 100% changed my practice. I, I was still occasionally using it for uh, 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 the rare double uh, hits. Uh, so, you know, BCL2 translocation, MYC translocation. I will not give dose-adjusted epoch to anyone outside of primary mediastinal B-cell lymphoma, even though I truly think if they ran a randomized my study, it probably wouldn't be any better. And I do that now uh, um, because every single data set we get with dose-adjusted EPOC, uh, uh, um, whether it be, you know, phase one data showing uh, uh, deaths from induction uh, in a phase one DLBCL population, which is pretty scary, uh, to phase three data showing increased toxicity, no benefit. And now phase three data that was presented at ASH, where they took um, double hit lymphoma and um, double expressor lymphoma. And they, yes, they did EPOC plus class versus EPOC, and they showed that, by adding the um, there was no benefit, and there was more death, and they had to halt the study early. Uh, it just shows it's not a friendly regimen to adding anything. It's clearly uh, unpleasant. That, to me, it's a no-brainer now not to give that regimen. I, I hope we don't hear about EPOC anymore on Twitter uh, or in studies, especially now that we have Polarics data. It's just not – it's just – They listen – the, right this was an NIH regiment that they came up with it I think or then CIA no, i mean you can't they, they like tried the... uh, listen I'm not they tried we've now shown it sucks it's no good it hurts patients can we stop giving it thank you
0: well we probably can't stop but thanks for trying um I mean, <laughs> all right it's well
1: it's bad it's bad it's bad, it's bad it, for patients it, it, it and it's it's toxic how a yeah. whole nother talk how that's the de facto standard of care for HIV-associated lymphoma amazes me to this day that that is the, the standard of care. So we've now studied it in non-HIV in numerous settings and have shown no benefit in added toxicity. You Does anyone think in their, their, their right mind, if you ran a randomized study in the HIV population, that this regimen would be better? <laughs> so there's something unique uh, in, in that population. If anything, it's going to be even more toxic because Yes, we do much better with HIV, but they're on lots of other medications and they tend to have some other sometimes issues, especially when they're diagnosed uh, uh, with low CD4 counts. So I I, I mean, I I would, that I would love to do that debate. How is that the de facto regimen for HIV? It amazes me, Um, but that's, um, so I don't use it in HIV lymphoma. I mean, in Burkitt's yes, but in like a a standard, I just give them our chop.
0: Aaron, it's always a pleasure to uh, have you on Healthcare Unfiltered. I think next time I'll probably see you at um, ASCO Chicago, right?
1: I don't usually go to ASCO; they tend to, uh, um, you know, not do too much. Team, but I, I, might go. Um, go Chicago, I kind of want to go. I, I did have indeed. a lot of fun. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I actually, I had a lot of fun uh, at ASH. They managed to pull off that conference, I thought, safely. Granted, it was before the Omicron invasion. Uh, but to my knowledge, you know, they tested we all, you know, I, it, it can be done. And uh, there was something, you know, again, you know, um, there's something nice about being with friends and and, and like if, if like I got to see you, Shadi, I got to see I know. it really, I think it motivated a lot of us who've been you know, even me, I'm getting a little burned out with uh, the amount of clinical work and all these things. And COVID, it was nice. So I, I, I'm hopeful the conference is in person. I think will be a motivational push for for the oncology field.
0: It is. It is going to be in person because we need that for the economy of the city of Chicago.
1: Yes, my grandfather does turn 101, so um, uh, that's okay. an excuse to visit him in Chicago.
0: Yes, and I can't wait to be at the party. Yes. Aaron Goodman, Papa Heme on Healthcare Unfiltered, as always. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, folks, thanks. I hope you really enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun, just basically talking variety of things, Heme abstracts, Heme data, Heme trials, Heme papers, on Healthcare Unfiltered, what really caught the attention of Papahim in 2021 that have an impact in 2022. I hope you enjoyed it. Please let me know about this podcast, about other episodes, and by direct messaging me on Twitter or by sending me an email on my website, www.shadinabhan.com. I appreciate your support. Refer friends, colleagues, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And as always, let me know if you are a loyal listener, if you are listening to my podcast, reach out to get the podcast t-shirt, the famous Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt, gray or black, anytime you want that. Just let me know as a thank you from me to you. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with... One of my favorite sayings to for Albert Einstein. If you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. Until next time.